Hi, I'm Julia Golding, and welcome to my podcast, What Would Jane Do? We've reached episode two. And in this episode, Jane Austen is going to take on Game of Thrones. This episode is going to fall into three parts. First of all, we're going to pit Game of Thrones against Jane Austen in my three-word challenge. Then we're going to have a look at the world of Jane Austen and see if there's anything that was at all like Game of Thrones that she might have read or have seen. And finally, we're going to try and work out what she would have thought of the whole Game of Thrones phenomenon. But I'm not an expert on Game of Thrones, so I needed help in my definition of what the whole series is about. So turning to Facebook, I asked the hive mind to come up with a definition in three words. And this is what I got back. Opposite of Austin. Battle, sex, politics. Kings and kingability. Queens, not kings. Incest isn't best. Slaughter and slaughterability. Excessive nudity and violence. Strong female leads. Ruthless, graphic and deep. Sexual, violent and raw. Magical, shocking, intricate. Graphic, complex fantasy. Expansive, detailed, unexpected. Incest, death, travel. Dynamic, suspenseful, gripping. And special mention should go to Mike Treacy, who came up with the intriguing suggestion as an opening for a mashup of Jane Austen and Game of Thrones, which starts... Winter's coming. Oh, Mr. Bennett. So now let's do the same for Jane Austen and try and find three words to sum her up. Again, this is thanks to the Facebook community. Here are three words that characterise Jane Austen. Money versus merit. Romantic, detailed, escapist. Selfishness and sophistry. Political reform unnecessary. Women meet men. Sex and money. And special mention must go to Cecilia Busby for her suggestion, Game of Vicarages. So picking up on the three-word challenge, it was interesting to find there were a couple of terms that fitted both Game of Thrones and Jane Austen. Those were sex, though I think perhaps Jane Austen's sex is rather less graphic than you might find in Game of Thrones. Uh, Escapist, for both uh, communities who watch Game of Thrones and Jane Austen series, there's an element of wishing to escape from the here and now. Detailed, both offer us worlds that we feel we can enter into and enjoy. And perhaps really interesting is the strong female leads. Now, you may not have to ride a dragon, but you can be Elizabeth Bennet taming the dragon of Lady Catherine de Burr. So there are some few similarities between what otherwise might seem quite different worlds indeed. So now we have a sense what both worlds involve from our three-word challenge. Let's turn to what Jane Austen might have to say about Game of Thrones. Now, it's fair to say that many people who've clicked on this podcast might be thinking, well, obviously Jane Austen has nothing to say about it. What can a spinster living in the early 19th century 
have to say about very modern material which they're watching on their big screen TVs. Of course, we are falling into the usual trap of thinking that we are the first to invent something. Uh, If you look at her time, the most comparable thing that was going on was the craze for the Gothic. And I was looking at the description of one of the most infamous of the Gothic novels, which is The Monk by Matthew Lewis, uh, which was published in 1796. In fact, actually, Lewis was only 19 years old when he wrote this, so it's a very young man's book. Uh, He's the same age as Mary Shelley was when she wrote Frankenstein. 19 is obviously a very creative time. But anyway, if you look at the themes in this book, it does sound very much like the kind of world of Game of Thrones. We have rape, murder, sorcery, incest. We have all sorts of convoluted plot lines and characters all set in a sort of medieval feeling world of Madrid under the uh, Inquisition. And we have two particular standout bad guys. That is Ambrosio, who is the the monk of the title, but also his wicked paramour, who is Matilda, who is quite up there with some of the Game of Thrones evil characters. This book shows us that Jane Austen would have had access to very similar kind of material. Uh, I just wanted to show you two versions of the response to that at the time. Uh, The first is Coleridge. He actually wrote a review of The Monk and he singled out Matilda as a particularly strong creation. But he went on to condemn the whole for its morality one of the things I found funny about that is his excuse for actually reviewing it at all. He says, he was induced to pay particular attention to this work from the unusual success which it has experienced. And really, that's a bit like Game of Thrones, isn't it? A lot of people who wouldn't normally give the time of day to a a fantasy piece with battles and incest and sex and nudity and all the rest of it have felt drawn to have an opinion on the whole piece because of the success it has achieved worldwide. But what about Jane Austen's own review of The Monk? We actually do find out what Jane Austen felt about books like The Monk on the more um, lurid end, shall we say, of the Gothic novel craze because she mentions it directly in Northanger Abbey. And it's quite telling as to which character she gives it to. So in chapter seven, there is a discussion between Catherine and her new friends, the Thorpes, about all the various Gothic novels that they've been reading from the Lending Library. And John Thorpe, who, bit of a plot spoiler here, turns out not to be a sterling chap. He is pretty mean about all the gothic novels his sister's been reading. He says, you dolfo, oh lord, not I, I never read novels. I have something else to do. Catherine, humbled and ashamed, was going to apologise for her question, but he prevented her by saying, novels are all so full of nonsense and stuff. There has not been a tolerably decent one come out since Tom Jones, except the monk. I read that t'other day, but as for all the others, they are the stupidest things in all creation. Now, the two that he's chosen, Tom Jones, which is a very good novel by Henry Fielding, but at the time was also famous for being 
thought of as a bit risque for young ladies because of Tom Jones' love affairs with various women. But the monk is far, far beyond the pale because of the um, the rape and the incest and all those other things which would make you doubt about putting it in a modern child's hands, shall we say. So by putting it in the hands of John Thorpe and making him the one who admires it, I think we it is safe to infer that Jane wasn't that impressed by the monk and its themes. But of course, that didn't mean to say that she didn't read and enjoy a lot of Gothic novels. Now we turn to the kind of Gothic which Jane Austen does appear to have read and enjoyed, and that is what I'll call the Gothic light, the kind of work that Anne Radcliffe was most famous for. She gets quite a few mentions uh, in Jane Austen and is amongst the list which uh, Isabella Thorpe presents to Catherine to read in Northanger Abbey. Anne Radcliffe was by far and away the most famous of the Gothic writers in the 1790s and her books such as The Mysteries of Rudolfo were on everybody's reading list and probably most borrowed from the library. And just to give you a a flavour of what they're like, The Mysteries of Rudolfo, for example, is about our heroine Emily who is in love with somebody called Valancourt but instead is forced to accompany Count Montoni who is the sort of baddie of the piece, to his castle of Udolfo. Her works get a number of mentions during the novels. My favourite is probably the conversation between Isabella Thorpe and Catherine Morland in Chapter 6 of Northanger Abbey, where you can see that Jane is really enjoying the phenomenon of having mass readership of these horrid mysteries. Isabella Thorpe says to Catherine that they can read the Gothic novels together and sort of bond over it. She says, when you have finished Udolfo, we will read The Italian together. Those are both novels by Anne Radcliffe. And I have made out a list of 10 or 12 more of the same kind for you. Have you indeed? How glad I am. What are they all? And then that follows a most marvellous list of Gothic novels. I will read you their names directly. Here they are in my pocketbook. Castle of Wolfenbach, Claremont, Mysterious Warnings, Necromancer of the Black Forest, Midnight Bell, Orphan of the Rhine, and Horrid Mysteries. Those will last us some time. And Catherine says, Yes, pretty well, but are they all horrid? Are you sure they are all horrid? So it sounds rather like someone who wants to be ensured that a horror movie is really going to scare the heck out of them. I think the warmth of the writing about this and the sort of humour which Jane Austen brings to this shows that she actually loves the thing that she is mocking. And I think that's how I understand her approach to the Gothic. She really goes for it and enjoys it, but she also sees its shortcomings. And of course, there is one person in Jane Austen's time who actually lived what I would call a gothic Game of Thrones kind of life, and that is Lord Byron, the famous poet. He burst upon the literary scene in 1812 with his poem Child Harold. He was even more famous for his complex private life with lovers and also uh, incestuous relationships. So he would fit straight into a Game of Thrones world. I'm not sure what house you want to put him in. I'll leave that to you to decide. And what did Jane Austen make of Lord Byron? 
She writes to her sister Cassandra on Saturday the 5th of March 1814. My dear Cassandra, do not be angry with me for beginning another letter to you. I have read The Corsair, that's the poem by Byron, mended my petticoat and have nothing else to do. So I think you can see that she's treating Byron's poetry with a sort of breeziness that shows that she's enjoying it, but she's also quite happy to um, just mention it in a list of other things she has to do. So I think she's fond of Byron, gets what she wants from it, but she clearly isn't under Byron's spell, as so many uh, society ladies of the day were. And I think we can see this also in more detail in her last novel, Persuasion, which actually ended up being published posthumously. And in Persuasion, Anne Elliot, who's our heroine, has a fascinating conversation with someone she meets, a guy called Captain Benwick. Now, Benwick is a naval officer who is in deep grief because the woman he loved and wanted to marry died too young before they could get wed. And he's been in this, well, I suppose you'd call it a depression. And Anne, amongst all the party who go on the visit to Lyme Regis, is the one who takes the time to talk to him. And they bond over talking about poetry, particularly looking at the respective merits of Walter Scott, who is the other big poet of that time, and Byron. But Anne brings a dose of common sense to the Appreciation Club. She's worried that this kind of material is actually going to destabilise Captain Benwick, and she alludes to that. Uh, the, The quote is that she thought it was the misfortune of poetry to be seldom safely enjoyed by those who enjoyed it completely. There's a sense that Benwick is feeding his own um, grief by reading such impassioned stuff. And then Anne goes on claiming a right of seniority of mind, which is an interesting phrase there, that the woman is more sensible and more mature than the man in this case. And she goes on to recommend a larger allowance of prose in his daily study. And when she's asked to suggest what, she mentions such work of our best memorialists, such collections of the finest letters, such memoirs of characters of worth and suffering. Her aim is to write the ship as uh, Captain Benwick is clearly taking on water and sinking fast, and by giving him the strongest examples of moral and religious endurances to bolster him. Now, that isn't to say that she disapproved of the poetry, not at all. She's just saying that indulging in that fantasy of the strong passions and the Byronic heroes isn't going to help him get better. Now it's time for our verdict. What would Jane Austen have made of Game of Thrones? Well, first of all, I think the thing that really stands out about Game of Thrones that makes it much better than a kind of potboiler gothic romance of Jane Austen's day that puts it up there with the the best of those kind of productions is that it has this sense of everything being morally shaded and morally conflicted. You get characters like Daenerys who goes on a huge character arc over the series and ends up, well I'm not sure where she's going to end up yet, no spoilers in this podcast, but you get the sense that she isn't all black and all white. And I think that's something that Jane Austen would really have admired in the craftsmanship in that character. If you look at her own characters, one of the really interesting things is that these are the first really rounded characters in English literature in many ways. 
I'm talking here in the tradition of the novel rather than the stage, because obviously you only need to look to Shakespeare to find some very rounded characters. Somebody like Mary Crawford from Mansfield Park, someone whose energy you can admire and be attracted to while seeing her moral shortcomings. She doesn't fall neatly into the villain category. She's not a Matilda in the style of the, the monk. But also there's the other thing that's in Game of Thrones, which I think Jane Austen would have appreciated, is the sense of the presence of death. This is more the fact of an everyday experience in the Georgian world was of people dying. We don't really think of that when we think of the pretty Jane Austen world of balls, muslin dresses and carriages. But the average life expectancy I was shocked to find when I was researching some books I was writing for children in this area was in the cities, 25 years old, that obviously folds in a lot of infant mortality. I think you had a slightly better chance if you're out in the countryside, somewhere like Steventon, where Jane Austen grew up. But it wouldn't have been much more than 35. So she would have been very familiar with that and would have found Game of Thrones describing a world which she saw around her. And of course, would have lost many people in her own family suddenly and unexpectedly. Whether or not she would have wanted that in her entertainment, I'm not so sure. That's perhaps something for discussion. But also one thing I do feel that she would have enjoyed was the sense of excitement. I'm reminded of the excitement that went around Harry Potter when that first came out, how we'd all line up at midnight to get the next book. Uh, the excitement around Game of Thrones and the release of the next episode, that seems to me comparable. You find it people just talking about it in a way that very few things now actually unite us culturally. And this is one thing that has. And so with um, Jane Austen, I think she would have been up there downloading at the first opportunity. The reason I'm saying that is that she did join in the literary excitement of her own day. She was a subscriber, literally a subscriber to the next volume by Fanny Burney in 1796, which was called Camilla. So she gets her name as one of the people who helped sponsor this work. So I've got a feeling she would have enjoyed being involved in that moment. So that leaves the question, would Jane Austen have been a Game of Thrones fan? Well, I think on balance, I would say yes. She would have enjoyed the moment that has been created that everyone's excited about. She would have enjoyed the realistic portrayal of the ever-present threat of death. And she would have enjoyed the morally ambiguous characters. She also would have, I think, been a fan who treated it all with a high sense of humour. I can imagine her mocking Game of Thrones as well as enjoying it. And wouldn't it have been fun to have seen a Jane Austen mashup, the game of vicarages, as was suggested earlier. So I think part of the fun would have been also picking at its flaws. But that really is the very best kind of book or film to watch, is the one we can enjoy and also take apart. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you've got any topics that you'd like Jane Austen to tackle, please do drop me a line and let me know. So until next time, don't forget, when in doubt, ask yourself, what would Jane do?